Section 3 of The Nature and Authority of Conscience by Rufus Jones. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 3 The Nature and Scope of Conscience. Part 1. The best account of conscience with which I am acquainted is not in a learned book, but it is from the experience of a little child. He had done wrong, and had suddenly discovered through his act a new fact within himself. He came to his mother, and, before making the confession which something within urged him to make, he naively said, "'I've got something inside me I can't do what I want to with.' Theodore Parker has given a touching account of a similar experience. It is as follows. When a little boy in petticoats in my fourth year, one fine day in spring my father led me by the hand to a distant part of the farm, but soon sent me home alone. On the way I had to pass a little pond-hole, then spreading its waters wide, a rhodora in full bloom a rare flower in my neighborhood which grew only in that locality attracted my attention and drew me to the place i saw a little spotted tortoise sunning himself in the shallow water at the root of the flaming shrub i lifted the stick i had in my hand to strike the harmless reptile for though i had never killed any creature yet i had seen other boys out of sport destroy birds squirrels and the like and I felt a disposition to follow their wicked example. But all at once something checked my little arm, and a voice within me said, clear and loud, It is wrong. I held back my uplifted stick in wonder at the new emotion, the consciousness of an involuntary but inward check upon my actions, till the tortoise and the rotora both vanished from my sight. I hastened home and told the tale to my mother, and asked what it was that told me it was wrong. She wiped a tear from her eye with her apron, and, taking me in her arms, said, Some men call it conscience, but I prefer to call it the voice of God in the soul of man. If you listen to and obey it, then it will speak clearer and clearer, and always guide you right. But if you turn a deaf ear or disobey, then it will fade out little by little and leave you all in the dark and without a guide. Your life depends on heeding this little voice. Note. For a similar story in the experience of John Woolman, see his journal. Whittier, F.D., page 53. I propose to deal, all too briefly, with that strange, inevitable, irrepressible something inside us, which, with a voice of authority, rules over our instincts and propensities. Whatever else it may be, it is something we cannot do what we want to with. Its very owner and possessor cannot suppress it, cannot evade it, cannot brush it aside, cannot bribe it cannot eliminate it. It is not an instinct, for an instinct is a specific way of acting to a specific external situation, while conscience is capable of the same endless variations of response that mark our appreciation of beauty, and it has no fixed set of reactions, 
determined by some mechanism in the physical structure. It is not a special sense, for a sense must have a definite end-organ in the body, which is aroused by a specific stimulus and provided with a specific brain center in the cerebral cortex. Conscience has been thought of as an oracle in the breast, and therefore as something alien to ourselves as finite persons. But, on the other hand, it obviously tallies with the rest of our experience. It is not something apart or independent or unattached. It is embedded in our actual concrete life. It harmonizes and is consistent with our everyday human experience. It does not stand aloof above our life, as the rainbow stands above the onward flood of water at Niagara. It is rather a binding, organizing principle which makes life stable and coherent. It attaches to the original capacity of self-consciousness the capacity to create ideals, to look before and after, to outspan and overarch its own states and processes, and to review and judge, value and revise its own operations. Conscience is not an affair of some isolated part of us, the function of some fragment of our being. It appears rather to belong to our entire self and to underlie all the activities that are essential to personality. It is the whole integral self becoming awake and active whenever the deepest issues of life are put in jeopardy or are at stake. It is the affirmation of our innermost character, the arousal in us of those ideal values which constitute our proper self. We move along unconcerned and unconscious until our central aspirations are threatened or until the innermost ideals of our soul are challenged or until the end or aim that forms the submerged groundswell of our life is exposed to danger. Until the crisis came, we may have lived almost unaware of these deep-lying currents of our being. We could not have answered perhaps easily, quickly, and without halting, if someone had challenged us with the query, What do you want? What does life mean? What, after all, is your aim? It had not been thought through or explicitly envisaged. But now a situation emerges which calls for decision and action, and suddenly we see revealed the fact that our choice between the alternatives will settle irrevocably the kind of person we are to be. That inarticulate ideal which all our previous life had been weaving now becomes alive and vocal. The eyes and nose are called for, and we vote to express, and at the same time to guard and preserve what constitutes the permanent trend of our character as a person. That which we are, the whole of ourself, asserts itself, and stands for its sacred rights of being. Conscience is thus the inner man's recognition of what is essential for the preservation and development of that which constitutes his real life. Not to have it would mean not to have consciousness of onward direction, or of any values to preserve, or of any worth to life, or of any integrity to maintain. Whatever we may finally conclude about the nature of conscience, 
we shall not be able to detach it from the soul's central ideal. It is at least the revelation of the kind of person we propose to be. Note, see Professor Hawking's interesting position in Human Nature and Its Remaking. Yale Press, 1918, page 99. An erring conscience is a chimera, wrote Immanuel Kant, a little more than a hundred years ago. Conscience, he means to say, when it speaks with its true imperial authority, is magisterial, absolute, and infallible. It cannot err. It is the voice of a supreme reason uttering itself out of eternity into time. Bishop Joseph Butler, writing half a century earlier, like Kant, gave conscience imperial authority. He said, Conscience is a faculty in kind and in nature supreme over all others, and which bears its own authority of being so. He continues, This is a constituent part of the idea of conscience, that is, of the faculty itself, to be superior, and to take the superintendency, to preside and govern, from the very economy and constitution of man, belongs to it had it strength as it has right had it power as it has manifest authority it would absolutely govern the world note kant's preface to his metaphysical elements of ethics butler's sermons sermon two henry moore the cambridge platonist made reason and conscience synonymous with what he calls the light within and he held like these other absolutists that conscience stamps with the great seal of god all acts that are right reason then always countersigns the acts thus stamped with this royal seal End of note. another great churchman almost in our own time john henry newman emphatically took the absolutist position for conscience conscience he declared in eighteen seventy five is the aboriginal vicar of christ a prophet in its informations a monarch in its peremptoriness a priest in its blessings and anathemas note in a letter to his grace the duke of norfolk on occasion of mr gladstone's recent expostulation eighteen seventy five thomas carlyle in england and ralph waldo emerson in america were powerful exponents in the nineteenth century of this majestic and authoritative conscience. Carlyle, in past and present, said, Thus does the conscience of man project itself athwart whatever of knowledge or surmise, of imagination, understanding, faculty, acquirement, or natural disposition he has in him, and, like light through colored glass, paint strange pictures on the rim of the horizon and elsewhere truly the same sense of the infinite nature of duty is the central part of all within us a ray as of eternity and immortality immured in dusky many-colored time and its deaths and births emerson expresses as strongly as does kant the außerordentlich absolute character of duty Within this erring, passionate mortal self, he says, sits a supreme, calm, immortal mind. It is stronger than I, it is wiser than I, it never approved me in any wrong. 
I seek counsel of it in my doubts. I repair to it in my dangers. I pray to it in my undertakings. It seems to me the face which the Creator uncovers to his child. Twice in his poems Emerson has given as lofty expression to this august inner voice as appears anywhere in modern literature. So nigh is grandeur to our dust, so near is God to man, when duty whispers low, thou must, the youth replies, I can. Though love repine and reason chafe, there came a voice without reply. Tis man's perdition to be safe when for the truth he ought to die. It would be easy to go on increasing almost without limit the testimony from great writers and distinguished thinkers to the unique and authoritative character of the moral voice within the soul. If there were no counter-testimony, no other side to the question, there would be no problem of conscience. There might still be a mystery about it, as there is about all the deep, bottomless realities of human life, but if all men agreed that the soul of man is supplied with an unvarying, unmistakable, oracular, inerrant, absolute moral voice, the baffling, tragic problem, so familiar to the serious modern man, would largely vanish. Unfortunately, there is another side. Good men as devout as Bishop Butler, and great men as conversant with the nature of man as Immanuel Kant, deny that the human soul is furnished with an infallible moral organ or faculty by which the eternal right is revealed here in our finite temporal world of mutability. They insist that there are variations in moral pronouncements, as there are in all other lines of human striving and in all other fields of man's endeavor. Whatever finite instrument man may possess, they tell us, is subject to mistake and error, and the moral insight is no exception. The trail of finitude marks all his faculties, even the highest ones. Robert Barclay, who gave in the seventeenth century the classical interpretation of the Quaker view of conscience, accepted the fact that there are great variations in human conscience. He accounted for this unhappy fluctuation of the standard by supposing that conscience is a natural faculty and subject to the warping influence of instinct, nurture, and casuistry. His solution of this obvious difficulty was that, while the natural conscience is variable and uncertain, there is something vastly superior to conscience within reach of man's soul. This superior guide Barclay called the light within. This light is, he held, absolutely divine, of a wholly different nature from the soul of man and its faculties. It is not any part of man's nature, nor any relic of any good which Adam lost by his fall. It is distinct and separate from man's nature, a superadded, supernatural gift. Being divine and spiritual, it cannot be corrupted or influenced by the impact of this imperfect world. It forever, through all mutations of space and time, remains pure and unaltered. When conscience is informed and enlightened, 
by this superior light, it becomes purified and rectified. The blindness of natural judgment is removed, and the false opinions of the understanding are dispelled. Conscience is thus to be compared to a lantern, and this light within is the candle which illuminates it. The lantern is useful when a clear candle burns and shines in it, but it is otherwise of no use. Note. See Barclay's Apology, Prop. 5, section 16. We have a lantern of our own, but it is inadequate until a mysterious torch is lighted in it and burns with a light not our own from a world beyond this finite one. This became for many generations the generally accepted Quaker view. The friend who held this position formed the conviction that he was the direct recipient of the will of God and he believed that his oracular voice within was the absolute word of God to him. This interpretation of conscience produced, as one would expect, a body of people who felt confident that they were in possession of the truth, and who unhesitatingly believed that the ultimate principles of righteousness were unveiled to them. That faith gave them an undoubted moral force. Individual faithfulness became the supreme watchword, and obedience to the light was felt to be the most sublime and awful duty that this world could know. Almost exactly this position was held by many of the scholastic theologians, especially by the great mystics. There is, they believed, an uncreated essence within the soul of man, a spark of light the seed or ground from which all spiritual activity springs. They called this basic foundation synteresis, sometimes incorrectly spelled synderesis. It is a divine center or substratum of the soul, a provision of the constitution of the soul by which man recognizes moral distinctions and assents to the appeal of obligation. It is the function of conscience, on the other hand, they held, to decide what particular act in the complications of life is right or wrong. This decision involves judgment, and judgment often errs. It includes an emotional factor, too, and the emotions swerve us from the true aims of life. Conscience, as the guide in the mazes of this earthly life, is thus subject to error and mistake. It may go right, or it may go wrong. But the synteresis, the unsundered basis of the soul, which has the illumination of God in its very structure, is absolute and infallible. One trouble with this scholastic theory, as with Barclay's, is that it introduces us to an infallible resource, but at once informs us that in all emergencies of life we must use a poorer device. It is slight satisfaction to know that we possess an absolute provision if the moment we come to act we must change our gear and serve ourselves with a more clumsy human contrivance. All our moral acts and decisions lie in the sphere of the concrete and particular, and we are not greatly assisted by a provision which applies only to goodness in the glorious abstract. This theory will, I am sure, help us to explain the origin of conscience when we come to that problem but it does not work in the practical task of finding out 
what is the right course of action just here and now where the many paths of the way deviate this account of conscience was no doubt a valuable interpretation at the time when it was formulated and it served a good purpose in the period when it was customary sharply to separate the divine and the human into dualistic compartments under systems of thought which once prevailed there seemed no way to maintain the divinity of christ without seriously blurring or even tacitly denying his humanity the either-or dilemma appeared inevitable to insist upon humanity was to slight divinity to exalt and glorify divinity was to reduce humanity to an appearance an illusory seeming the same situation attached to theories of scripture infallibility in order to safeguard the authority of the bible it seemed necessary to claim not merely divine inspiration but even dictation by god of the actual words so that the writers were reduced to mechanical puppets who simply transmitted what was communicated to them and balaam's ass on this account might be regarded and sometimes was regarded as no less adequate a reporter than isaiah or paul on the other hand as soon as one began to emphasize a human and literary element in scripture he was bound to be suspected of heresy and set down as a bold denier of the divine authority of the ancient word the world was doomed on this basis to travel a curious zigzag course one extreme of emphasis leading inevitably to a compensating swing in the opposite direction the dualistic interpretation of the universe was responsible for another famous theory of conscience which long held the field the intuition theory this was the view that conscience is a divinely implanted faculty or moral sense supplied from another world to the new arrival here in this one it is a complete and independent contrivance for knowing virtue it is neither derived from reason nor acquired by experience it is a god-given monitor a precise and unerring guide one may obey its pointing or not obey it but it remains from the beginning of life to the end of it an oracular voice announcing the path which ought to be taken it was natural under the conditions of thought which prevailed that the authority of conscience should be maintained in this ready-made easily workable fashion it was supposed that only by a severe dichotomy cleaving asunder the human and the divine and making conscience wholly derived from yonder could its superiority and superintendency be secured and guaranteed this fixed static immutable oracle foreign to the human characteristics of the soul and from beyond its margins unaffected by any changes or variations of earth did not present the same intellectual difficulties to seventeenth and eighteenth century psychology that it does to the experience and the psychology of the present time we do not like schemes which split our universe into compartments and set chasms between the here and the yonder our moral decisions cannot be detached from the natural psychological functions by which we live we must decide what to do in complicated situations which have grown out of social and historical movements and our decision in order to be right 
must be one that will produce the best moral results, not for some remote other world, but for this one, here, where our moral issues lie and are to be found. It would be as intelligent to treat of the harmonious beauty of Beethoven's music without any reference to human ears that can hear it, as it would be to talk of consciousness of moral duties without consideration of social institutions in connection with which duties have meaning and significance. Bishop Berkeley thought that all facts of sense experience were the result of direct divine communications from the mind of God to the soul of the individual. This intuition theory does not see any necessity of going to that metaphysical extreme, but with restraint insists only on direct infallible revelations in the moral sphere. In this one region of our life everything that concerns us is operated from the other world and comes from yonder. Every revelation of duty is divinely communicated. Every intimation of the right course is injected into our natural man, somewhat as the click of our electric clock is injected into it from a dynamic center at Greenwich or Washington. This theory of conscience as an implanted oracle not only commits us to a dualistic universe and a dualistic human nature, but it takes from us our moral autonomy. It makes us hollow pipes for a voice not our own to sound through. In the striking words of Coleridge, spoken against a similar theory, this breathing organism, this glorious panharmonicon, which I have seen stand on its feet as a man, with a man's voice given to it, the doctrine in question turns at once into a colossal Memnon's head, a hollow passage for a voice, and yet no man uttered it, and never in a human heart was it conceived. Note, Coleridge, Confessions of an Inquiring Spirit, Letter 3. It makes the very basis of morality something foreign and external to ourselves. All the rich life and co-agency of our humanity is miraculously suspended. Our moral faculty becomes inexplicable in terms of anything known to us. A voice which comes from outside our human experience, and which we can never investigate or verify, imposes an absolute command upon us and we must always obey it without ever knowing or asking why. On this theory any individual may always defend his course on the claim that he is obeying the infallible divine voice. It supplies us with no universal and overarching moral truth or principle by which individual differences can be settled. It furnishes us autocratically with a ready-made decision for each occasion, and we have no function but to accept or refuse it. The individual is a mitred pope. His dogmatic deliverance ends all issues. He can challenge all opposition with the assertion, I am the recipient of an infallible revelation, the oracular voice of a divine command. The solid moral experience of the race casts grave doubt upon this claim to infallibility, Persons who have made the tremendous claim have often proved to be misguided, and some of the deeds which men have performed on the infallible ground of an authoritative voice do not now seem to enlightened men to have been 
heaven-guided. We have, too, been learning that God does not supply us with easy, labor-saving contrivances which relieve us of perplexing and tragic strains. We have been compelled to spell out with slow and painful effort the secrets of nature which might have been communicated to us from the start, so that we should have been spared the long, weary wilderness wanderings of discovery. We might have been told where the coal lay hid and where the oil was stored. We might have had an early message about the microbes and antitoxins, which would have saved us many losses and catastrophes. The information was not vouchsafed. No kind voice from the sky announced the errors of the Ptolemaic astronomy and the truth which Copernicus discovered so late. The race was for long centuries within easy reach of electrical energies, but no sociable angel was sent to tell us how to tap these sources of power. Mechanical shortcuts and magical clicks which transmit from another world our moral deliverances must therefore be open to some suspicion. Finally, it does not seem true to the actual facts of experience that everybody always on all concrete occasions of life has a perfectly clear, definite, and precise revelation of the right course. The psalmist said, I open my mouth and pant for thy commandment. Those who are not psalmists have often felt as he did. There can be no doubt that every moral person has at some eventful crossroad moment of his life longed and panted for a clear knowledge of the right course which with all his sincere yearning he could not discover much of our moral effort it is true is due to the fact that we cannot raise our will to the pitch of following our vision but we also most surely experience this other difficulty we want to discover the right trail in the complicated jungle which environs us, and we cannot tell infallibly which track leads toward the light and will unerringly take us to the goal. One does not need to have been charged with the cure of souls in the world of our time in order to be impressed with the reality of this perplexity. What one of us, if too old ourselves to be at the crossroads, has not tried to help some serious-minded youth face to face to-day with difficulties as hard as those which confronted antigone whose heart led her to take one course while the laws of her country required her to take a different one we have seen men of the most unquestionable honesty and of sun-clear purity of purpose unable to discover by any click or through any infallible mechanism what the sure path of their feet really was, and when they emerged from their moral struggle we have seen one man following one hard path and another man, equally honest and sincere, following a path antithetic to the first one, though perhaps no more soft or easy. But we run into greater confusion, and we make the perplexities of life still greater when we assume that conscience is nothing but a mutable and errant empirical feeling developed by the natural processes of an evolving world many attempts have been made to explain conscience as a slow natural acquisition either in the individual or in the race no theories of acquisition by education or by evolution give any adequate account one 
of the origin of conscience, nor, too, of the august and authoritative character of it. It is easy to see that there is an educational factor always in evidence wherever conscience appears, but it is impossible to understand how mere social habits and family customs and the influence of praise and blame, of approval and disapproval, could of themselves produce the overwhelming conviction of duty or the compelling sense of obligation which mark conscience at its highest. This explanation gives no clue to the majesty of an autonomous moral self. Some original and underived capacity must be assumed in the very structure of the soul which makes the child responsive to moral education, for no external authority could teach the child moral duty except by calling into activity the latent powers of his soul. Note, see Hastings Rashdall's Conscience and Christ, page 24. Huckleberry Finn is speaking, not as a character in fiction, but as a real boy alive in the world, when, pagan as he is, he comes suddenly upon the immense fact that conscience takes up more room than all the rest of our insides put together. Evolutionary writers have tried to push the education further back, and to explain conscience as a product of the slow disciplinary culture of the race. Writers like Herbert Spencer have contended that the newborn child literally inherits the immemorial gains of the centuries. He arrives with the intellectual and moral riches which his less favored ancestors have won. He is literally heir of all the ages. He comes equipped with what society has learned and now requires for its continued existence. This theory assumes, without sufficient proof, that the tiny increments of moral wisdom which each generation acquires are inherited by the offspring of that generation and passed on to the remote heirs. But this immense claim is unproved. There is grave doubt whether acquired characteristics, gained by the efforts of a parent, are ever inherited by offspring, and that questionable theory must in any case be affirmatively proved before we can use it as a natural explanation of conscience. Professor Edward Westermark has written a great two-volume work full of learning and patient research, tracing from the lowest levels of life to the highest the slow accumulations of emotion and behavior. L. T. Hobhouse has, with no less success, followed the stages of the evolution of emotion as action, as they enter into moral conduct. More important than either of these books is A. F. Shan's The Foundations of Character, a contribution of immense value. But none of these volumes, however valuable their anthropological history of instincts and emotions may be, explains to us the majesty of duty or the imperial authority which not only Butler and Kant recognize, but which the most humble of us have sometimes realized. There is something there which the history of instincts, emotions, and behavior fails to reach. It does not seem possible for any extension of our scientific knowledge to reduce conscience to a naturalistic explanation. Its power over us cannot be explained on the ground that it aids survival. The distinction of right and wrong does not rest in the ultimate analysis upon prudence 
foresight or any consideration of utilitarian results in fact upon any extraneous or self-advantageous considerations it cannot be reduced to a fine calculation of results it cannot be traced to an emotion or to an instinct which aided survival or to a racial habit or custom we do not catch the secret of conscience by any study of the slow results of restraint or the fear of punishment here or hereafter the difficulty about the whole situation is that fear of consequences is not morality it is fear of consequences it proves to be impossible to explain the higher the essential features of conscience by a reference either to biological history or to the influence of social environment we have in the sublime obligation of duty a fact of the most momentous significance it attaches not to an accident of biological survival it is rooted in the fundamental nature of self-consciousness it is bound up with the unique fact that man is man and not animal it has the same standing and the same sure ground of validity that truth has in the sphere of knowledge when we speak of truth we always mean something wholly different from opinion truth rises above the variations of sense reports and the accidents and caprices of contingent happenings it voices something as universal permanent unalterable irreversible eternal and absolute it gives us contingent items of experience but here at length they are organized through a universal rational principle which abides and holds firm through all the welter of change and variation its basis the basis of truth is not to be found somewhere outside in the stream of events it is to be found inside in the nature of the mind that knows archbishop temple has finally expressed this fundamental distinction which belongs to our nature as rational spiritual beings he says however far our doubts may go they cannot root up from within us without our own consent nor i would add even with it the power which claims to guide our lives with supreme authority they cannot obliterate from within us the sense of right and wrong and of everlasting difference between them they cannot silence unless we join in silencing the voice that bids us believe that in spite of all that can be said seen or felt the law of right is the eternal foundation on which all things are built by this a man may yet live if he has nothing else to live by and god will assuredly give him more in his own good time note rugby sermons first series the central meaning of ought and the categorical distinction of right and wrong cannot be stated in terms of anything else or identified with any other content of consciousness but themselves we have here come upon something sui generis like the appreciation of beauty or the truth of mathematics one either has the trait or does not have it but if a man is not elementally susceptible to the meaning of ought 
he cannot be taught morality any more than he could be taught mathematics if he had no perception of the special distinction of up and down or out and in it is quite likely in fact it is only too obvious that there are men and women who are almost neutral when confronted with moral issues they are not so much immoral as unmoral they hardly know what one means when one talks of categorical imperatives and the overwhelming sense of ought or ought not they have not been there they see as those do who have no eyes plotinus has well said as it is not for those to speak of the beauties of the material world who have never seen them or known them men born blind for instance so must those be silent about the beauty of noble conduct and knowledge who have never cared for such things nor may those tell of the splendor of virtue who have never known the face of justice and temperance beautiful beyond the beauty of the morning and evening star note enneads number one sixteen four end of chapter three the nature and scope of conscience part one